listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning. Good morning. As you have a seat, if you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to pick up this morning where we left off. If you were here with us last week, we began a conversation in Colossians but in fact, a couple weeks ago, we started, uh, in the month of July, we take a little bit of a break from our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. And the first week of July, Bill uh, preached a sermon from Romans 12, uh, verse two, that says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And this word transformed, it means to change. It means to change. So what this teaches us about the Christian life is that following Jesus in the Christian life, it is a process, one where we are being changed, Right? The way we said it last week is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are not who you once were, but you are not yet who you will be, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ meets you where you are to make you into who God wants you to be. And so what I wanna talk about today is how does this happen? How does this change happen in our lives? And more specifically, um, what is the role that we play in this transformation? So if you have your Bible, Colossians 1, we're gonna start in verse 21. And just, just to clear the air, if you're thinking, this is what we did last week, you're right, okay? We're gonna do that in a shorter way and then we're gonna continue the conversation. Colossians 1, verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So these verses describe what the gospel does in the life of the Christian. It's, a, it's an overview of the Christian life. And there's two movements here, and it's what I said before. The first one in verse 21 is the gospel meets you where you are, that Jesus meets us where we are. And the second thing is he does this in order to make you who you are meant to be. And Paul starts by describing what life looks like apart from Jesus. He does so in three ways. He says we're alienated hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. This word alienated, it means to be estranged. But in the context, it means to be shut out of fellowship with, to be removed from fellowship with God. He says we're hostile in mind, which means every thought we think is in opposition to God, only it's not the things that, just the things we think, it's also our desires and our motivations. The idea is that we are completely enemies of God because of our alienation from him, and this leads us to what Paul calls doing evil deeds. Right? And this is the mess of our lives, that because of our sin, we are completely separated from God. Our position of separation from him leads us to live as enemies of God. And then Paul says this in verse 22, that's who you were. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That it, it is in that mess that Jesus meets us, that we were in that condition when Jesus steps into our lives, he has now reconciled us, meaning he brought us back. And I know I said this last week, but I need you to hear this again. This does not just mean that what Jesus accomplishes for you is, is forgiveness of sins. Now, it does mean that, which is incredible. That what Christ has accomplished for us means that we are forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. But this means that it does, that's not all he accomplishes because being reconciled means being more than just being forgiven. So forgiveness says, I'm not gonna hold this against you anymore. I could, I'm not going to, and so now you can go. I'm not gonna hold you here, you can leave. Reconciliation says now you can come. 
And church, this is what the Bible says Christ has accomplished for us, that although we were enemies of God and cut off from ever earning our way into relationship with him, Jesus steps into that mess and he brings us back. And how's he do it? How do we go from who we were to who we are now? The Bible says how? He reconciles us, verse 22, in his body by his death. In his body by his death. That means that although this is the farthest thing from what we deserve from him, Jesus comes steps into the mess of our lives. He lives a life we could never live. He dies the death that we deserve to die. The eternal son of God gives his life in your place so that you could be brought back into right relationship with God the Father. I love the way he says this in chapter two, starting in verse 13. Says a similar thing, but in different terms. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This changes everything. Everything about our life is different because of this truth. And and this is what we sang about last week. Last week we sang the song, my debt is paid, paid in full. How? By the precious blood that Jesus spilled. And what's the result? And now the curse of sin has no hold on me who the sun sets free is free indeed. This is what we sang last week, okay? Um, and, and this debt being paid, this is not like someone paying for your coffee. Anyone ever had that happen to him? I was in line this week. There were two guys in front of me. The guy paying says, I'm gonna get his too. Pointing to the guy ahead of me. And I was like, hey, here I am, you know? Um, what about me? That never happens to me. I actually didn't do that, but it never happens to me. No one ever pays for my coffee. But if it's ever happened to you, what's your response to that? Some stranger just picked up your coffee and you say, wow, how nice is that? Right? And you, and you probably are going to say, you don't have to do that because you intend to pay for your own coffee and it's not really moving the needle that much in your own life. And so you, it, it's so nice. And you leave and you go about your day pretty much the same as you would if you would have had to pay for it. That's not what's happening here. Jesus paying our debt is like you're drowning in credit card debt. Medical bills so large, you're afraid to even open them. You're upside down in your car, meaning it's worth less than you actually owe a bank for it. And you don't even make enough to cover your mortgage. You are being crushed. No way to climb out from underneath the mountain of debt that you owe. And someone shows up and says, I'll pay it. I'll pay it all. If that were your story and that actually happened to you, how would you respond? Would you say, wow, that's so nice. You didn't have to do that, but thank you anyways. No, you would rejoice because your life would never be the same. And here's the thing. The Bible just said this actually has happened to you in Christ. Only this doesn't even begin to capture the magnitude of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Paul says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh. Why? Verse 22 says, here's why. In order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. All right, so this can be a little bit confusing because there's three different he, his, and hims in this one verse. So who are the he, his, and hims, right? The he is Jesus, and the him is God the Father. So he, Jesus, has now reconciled you in his body by his death. Why? To present you before him, God the Father. This is talking about the day where we will all stand before a holy God and we will give an account for our lives. That's a terrifying thought, if we're honest. We will all stand before a holy God and give an account for our lives. But the Bible just said that if you are a Christian, meaning you are in Christ, you will stand before God one day to give an account for your life, only you won't be terrified. Because Jesus will be there with you. 
and he will walk up to the throne of God the Father with you and he will present you holy, blameless, and above reproach, without spot or blemish. The gospel meets you where you are to make you into who God wants you to be. We were, he says, hostile, but we will be holy. And here's the thing, most of us know that. Most of us are here because we believe the gospel. This is not the first time for most of us to have heard this truth, that that's who we were, but it's not who we are, and Jesus loves us, and all this truth, right? We know it, but somehow we've grown so numb to it that it no longer changes much in our lives. And this is why last Sunday, after the sermon, I stood about right there, and we sang this song, My Debt is Paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that Jesus spilled. And I looked back at the congregation, and I had the thought, we are singing about what Christ has done like he just paid for our coffee. We get numb to it. We sing about what Jesus has done like he just paid for our coffee and not like we've been reconciled from alienation back in the right relationship with God of the universe. And church, when you read verse 21, you need to read your name into that. You were once alienated. You were once hostile in your mind and your heart toward him. You and me were only capable of wickedness in our life with absolutely no shot of ever earning our way back to him, but God doesn't leave us there. You were alienated, but he has now reconciled. Jesus steps into the mess of our life, but God, Ephesians 2 says, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. I want you to hear this quote from a a book called The Furious Longing of God, a guy named Brennan Manning. It captures this so well. He says, if you took the love of all the best mothers and all the best fathers who have ever lived in the course of human history, and you took all their goodness and all of their kindness and all their patience and their fidelity and wisdom and tenderness and strength, and you took all of their love and you united every bit of that into one single person, That person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you and me at this moment. Our debt has been paid in full. Church, the good news of the gospel offers far more than forgiveness of sins. The offer of the gospel for you and me this morning is reconciliation. It's actual nearness to God, an actual relationship with him. Not just here, you're no longer guilty of your sin, go about your way. No, you get to draw near to him. It's not just forgiveness, it's reconciliation, it's come near, it's live and exist in relationship with me as sons and daughters. Paul starts with, here's who you were because that is what allows us to not sing about what's happened to us uh, like he just paid for a cup of coffee because we look back and go, that's who I was, but look who I am now. So do you remember what it was like to live under the weight of your sin? to be lost, to be far from God? Do you remember what it's like to be an enemy of him? The Bible says that is no longer true about you. And because of Jesus, the truest thing about you right now in this moment is that you are loved by God and you belong to him as a child. How good and kind is God to meet us where we are and to make us what only he can make us? The promise that we have in the Bible is that though we were once hostile, there is coming a day where we will be holy and blameless, and unaccusable. Do you hear the good news in that? Do you hear the good news in that? There is a day coming where you will no longer struggle with your sin. It's actually coming. A day where you will no longer struggle with your sin. More than that, Revelation 21 verse four says, there is a day coming where the skies are gonna open up. Jesus himself is going to return and he will, Revelation 21 verse four says, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. This day is coming, church. 
This is the hope of the Christian, that we have been reconciled to a God who loves us, who sees us, who cares about us. Everything in your life, ladies, that has caused you to shed a tear, Jesus will wipe it away. Everything in your life, fellas, that has made you feel like you should cry, God will wipe away every tear. That was a joke. One guy got it. Anthony got it. I have this bad thing where I make jokes in serious moments in sermons. I really got to stop. The day's coming where he will wipe away every tear from your eye. Neither, he says this, death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There is a day coming, but right now we are all, if we are following Jesus somewhere between hostile and holy. We are not who we were, but we are not yet who we will be. And we, the Bible is teaching, what I wanna talk about today, we have a role in that. In going from hostile to holy, Jesus is the one who does the work to change us, but God has invited us to play a role and a responsibility in that. That's what verse 23 means. So you were once alienated, he's now reconciled. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul says we have a role that we play in our changing from hostile to holy. And he tells us what that is in two ways. He communicates it in the positive and he communicates it in the negative, but it's the same idea. So he says, what, what do we do as Jesus changes us from hostile to holy? He says two things. One, we continue in the faith. That's the positive. And the negative, he says, is don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Again, two ways of communicating the same idea, not two different things. And the word continue here, it means to stay or to remain. So he's saying remain in the faith. Another way this word continue is translated in the Bible is the word abide. It means to dwell, to live. He says, abide in the faith. Live your life in the reality of what you believe, right? So what do we believe? Our faith is what we believe about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. I don't know of a single better verse than 2 Corinthians 5, 21 to, to capture what do we believe about who Jesus is and what he's done. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That God the Father makes Jesus to be sin, who comes, he lives a life we couldn't live, he dies the death we deserved, he takes our place so that we get his. That is our hope. Jesus dies in our place so that we can live in his and we have been reconciled to God the Father. And so Paul says in Colossians 1, abide in that, continue in the faith, don't move away from it. Spend your life in the reality that you belong to God as a son or a daughter and as you abide in this hope, the hope that you are forever and completely loved by God, not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done. As you live your life in this reality, abiding in this hope, it changes you. It changes you, it moves you. We have a role to play in that. And it's not to earn God's love. We don't abide in love so that we can be loved. We abide in the reality that it's true about us. Uh, the way I said it last week and have for, for years here is that we become, as we become, become more convinced of God's love for us, we're then more compelled to live our lives in, re, in response to it. Convinced and compelled, right? And so I think there's a misconception around Christianity in general. And it leads to some people not following him at all and it leads to other people giving up on him or trying to add to Jesus. The misconception is this, that if, if it were true, if 2 Corinthians 5, 21 were true, that God made, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, if that was true, then the change that we experience as a result would be automatic, that's the misconception around Christianity. It, gives, it, it leads people to, uh, to give up on him. And the problem with that is we don't think that way in any area of our lives other than this one. 
that if, if it were real, then it would happen automatically. Here's an example. Before I started, before my wife and I had our, our first child, I used to like to work out. And I know you're like, wow, could not tell, all right? Um, I did, okay? And now you're like, well, your wrists are the same size as your biceps, so we can never know. But I used to like to work out, and I haven't in a while. So uh, just tr- believe me, okay? Um, but if I wanted to be as strong as I was back then, would it be a fair expectation that I could achieve those results after going to the gym one time? No. What about a couple of times, a couple of weeks? No. But what if instead of working out really hard for a couple of weeks and then giving up because I didn't see the results I wanted to see, what if I was consistent for a year or two or five? Would I walk out of the gym on year five the way I walked in on year one? No. And the reason why is because substantial change in our lives happens through small repeated actions over long periods of time. That's the way things happen. Here's another example. Back in May, my wife and I celebrated our anniversary did a little staycation here in town, just for tourists in town. Had my in-laws come, kept the kids. It was awesome. We slept in as late as we want to. I think I got up at like 6.30. It was great. Um, my body's conditioned to not be able to do that. But um, anyways, we ate great food all weekend. We ate great food all weekend. And one night in particular, anniversary, we're like, I don't care what it costs, let's just do it. It was an incredible meal. Um, but here, here's the thing. That one amazing meal back in May is not what determines my physical health. You know why? Because as soon as we came back, I went right back to eating like my six-year-old. Chicken nuggets and leftover grilled cheese crusts, right? That's, the, that's what my diet consists of these days. And our health, we know this, our health is not shaped by infrequent amazing meals. Our health is determined by our normal diet. And in the same way, our spiritual diet affects our spiritual health, right? And this is the work of joining God in bringing real significant change in our lives, that we are shaped by the everyday things that we do and the things that we think and the things that we give our intention to. It's not these infrequent, amazing moments with God that determine the way that we go in our relationship with him. Those contribute to that, but it's not made up of that. It's the regular things, the regular rhythms and habits that we have in our lives. We quote this verse all the time, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. It says, we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we, with an unveiled face, no longer alienated from God, he gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, and we are beholding the glory of the Lord. You hear it there. We don't behold him once and then transformed. It's a regular pattern and activity, the daily things, the daily rhythms that you give your attention to and your thought and your time to, as we're beholding the glory of the Lord, he's transforming us into the same image. What image? The image of Jesus. And how does it happen? He says, from one degree of glory to another. So the change that we experience, not once, we always look to him, or every now and again, but as a regular part of the things that we give our attention to, the change we experience is, he says, one degree of glory at a time. And we don't like that. Got any football fans in here? It's getting close, all right? Georgia kicks off in 48 days. Who's counting, right? Go dogs. Um, how boring would a football game be if, if the ball moved one yard at a time and then you punt and then one ball one yard at a time and then you punt? Anyone watch that game? Anyone pay to see that game? No. We like big chunk plays. We like 30 yards, 40 yards, 50 yards at a time. The Bible says... The way that he's transforming us is our daily faithfulness, one degree of glory at a time. As we behold the beauty of Jesus, 
every single day and daily remain in the reality that we are loved by God because of who Christ is and what he's done. We are transformed. And you may not be able to see it in the moment, but that doesn't mean it's not working. This is why the apostle Paul gives it to us in two ways, in the positive and the negative. He says, continue in the faith. But don't shift from the hope of the gospel because we will be tempted in moments in our life to look and go, I'm not growing at all. Jesus must not be working. We're gonna be tempted. So he says, don't shift from the hope of the gospel and continue in the faith. The encouragement here in Colossians 1 is to stay close to Jesus, to make nearness to God a regular part of the rhythm of your life and you give it some time. You abide in Christ and you look back at your life, 2, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road and you go, man, look at what God's done in and through me. This is the invitation to follow Jesus. Again, substantial change in our lives happens through small repeated action over long periods of time. It's true about us physically and it's true about us spiritually. And so if you wanna change physically, you need to commit to some regular rhythms in your life around exercise and nutrition. Just, you need to pick some things that are gonna yield the type of results that you want for your body. And in a similar way, God has invited us to play a role in who we're becoming spiritually. The Bible teaches that there are some things that should be true about us that should make up the regular rhythms and the habits of our lives. And before we talk about those, I'm gonna give you a couple. There's a question I think that every Christian should answer. It's this, it'll be on the screen. Is the person that you want to become different than the person that your habits are making you? And what I mean by that is if you say, man, I wanna be godly. I wanna be humble. I wanna love Jesus. If that's who you wanna be, is the person, and you look at your life right now, the habits, the regular ways, the regular diet that you have, the things that you think, the things that you do, the things that you give your time to, is the person that you most wanna become different than the person your habits are making you? If you can say yes at all, when are we gonna change? Again, the gospel meets you where you are. We're not doing this to earn God's love and approval. These are things that allow us to stay close to Jesus, that remind us every day that it's true about us despite the fact that that's the farthest thing from what we deserve. The gospel meets us where we are to make us who God wants us to be. So he gives, uh, God is the one who does this work of transformation in us, but he gives us a role in this. So what are the things that we should commit to as regular rhythms in our life? I'm gonna give you three, and these aren't the only three things, okay? but these are three primary things and these aren't my ideas. It's not like, what do I think we need to do? Um, remember last week we said these three verses in Colossians 1 are a summary statement of the Christian life. And he spends the rest of the letter kind of deep diving the reality of that in, in our practical lives. And so that's where these come from. Commit to a regular rhythm of prayer, partnership, and proclamation. Prayer, partnership, and proclamation. Those all do start with the letter P, you're welcome. So firstly, if we wanna grow spiritually, we have to commit to a regular rhythm of prayer, all right? And if there's any confusion, here's what I mean by that. I mean that we need to create in our lives a regular rhythm of actually spending time with God. Actually spending time with God. And I know that's not surprising, right? You're gonna be at lunch later, someone's like, hey, what did the pastor talk about today? Well, you said we should pray. Wow, where'd he come up with that, you know? Um, I know it's not surprising, but here's the thing. I know that you know that we, as a Christian, you should be praying. What I want you to know is that it's not just that you should be doing it. Prayer is not just the Christian thing to do, right? It's that your, your life with God will move at the pace of your prayers. 
Your life with God, not just for God, but your life with him, your relationship with him will move at the pace of your prayers. And one of the things that I've learned in almost over 12 years of vocational ministry is that most Christians are a lot better at talking about God than we are at talking to him. And we said earlier that the offer of the gospel is not just forgiveness, it's reconciliation. It's that we once were enemies of God and slaves to our sin, but now through Christ, we are sons and daughters, which means that we've been given access to him to actually spend time with the God of the universe. And what happens, as soon as someone like me begins to mention prayer, there's a small percentage of you who lean in and you can't wait to hear what I'm gonna say next because you love to pray. And praise God, praise God. But the vast majority of you, you hear someone like me talk about prayer and you check out. Because, and it's not that you don't believe in prayer or that you don't think you should be praying or that you don't think it works, right? It's just because you've tried it before and you think you're no good at it. And so we just kind of check out. And what I want you to hear, if that's you, is the response of, I don't want to hear about prayer because I've tried it and I'm no good at it. That response completely misunderstands prayer altogether. Because, listen to this, prayer is not an option for elite Christians, or people who are really serious about their faith. Prayer is not an option. It is like oxygen for every Christian. You can't live without it. So when we think I'm no good at prayer, we are right. And the grace of God means for us that it's okay to jump into things that we're no good at because our skills don't determine our future. You know that, right? Our skills don't determine our future. The grace of God determines our future. Romans 8, 26 says, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we don't know what to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit of God, when we don't know what to pray, intercedes for us. And here's what that doesn't mean. This is not an invitation not to pray because you don't know how. Right, this doesn't mean, well, I don't know how or what to pray, so I don't have to worry about it, the Spirit will take care of it for me. What this means is, even when we're praying and we don't know what to say, the Spirit of God intercedes as we pray. So it's not an invitation not to pray. It means that God is gonna fix our broken praying on the way up. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And last week we talked about how our need for Jesus is the same today as it was the day we trusted Christ. No matter how long you've been following Jesus, you need him no more and no less. We are all desperate for Jesus and the same, uh, that, that's the same thing for our praying. We need him even to pray. And, and prayer is the gift that he gives us to connect our continual need with his continual grace. And so when we don't do it, we are taking the posture that says, I don't need him. Our lack of prayer reveals that we believe somewhere in our heart that we don't need him. This is why Paul says in Colossians 4, verse two, he says this, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So these words, continue and steadfast here in, in chapter four are actually different words than the, continuing the faith, stable and steadfast in chapter one. So those are two different Greek words. This is one Greek word and another translation of this in, in chapter four about prayer is to persevere. So the apostle Paul encourages the church after this letter toward the end, he says, I want you to persevere in prayer, which means that he knows that prayer will at times be difficult because you don't tell someone to persevere in something that's gonna come easy for them. And Colossians 4 verse 2 means that God wants us to pray whether we feel like it or not. Like I said before, it's not an option, it is oxygen. So this isn't, this isn't Paul saying, you better pray or else. 
It's an invitation to breathe. It's an invitation to to live, to actually be alive. It's not a spiritual exercise that we need to get out of the way. It's a privilege to enjoy. Prayer is an invitation to draw near to a God who not only cares about whatever it is that you're worried about, but he actually has the power to do something about it. Draw near. And, And if we're not continuing steadfastly in prayer, if we're not persevering in prayer, the reason is that there's something wrong with our doctrine. See, what, what happens, I'm talking about prayer, and you're getting, you might, hopefully, you know, you're getting motivated. You're compelled, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna start, I'm gonna really start praying now. Because of that, I'm gonna commit my life, I'm gonna really do it. The problem here is not completely a lack of discipline. It's something wrong with our doctrine. It's something wrong with our belief. And I'm not talking about the doctrine on our website of a church, that's fine. I'm talking about what we believe in our hearts at any given moment. There's something true about God that you're not believing if you're not persevering in prayer or there's something untrue about you that you are believing. Because listen to this, Colossians 1 teaches us, and we read this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the one who all things were created by and all things were created for. He is the one who sustains all things in him whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And if the doctrine of Colossians is true, if that's who Jesus is and it is true, then we should pray as if everything depends on Jesus, because it does. If we wanna grow spiritually, we need to commit to a regular rhythm of prayer, spending time with God. Here's the second one. We commit to a regular rhythm of partnership. Partnership, and what I mean by that is that we spend time with the people of God. So I want you to see this, Colossians 4, starting in verse seven. Apostle Paul says, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. And I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God and they have been a great comfort to me. So these verses, it seems like the part of the end of the show, it's just the credits and you skip over that, right? Unless um, there's something funny at the end. You know what I'm talking about? No one is listening to me right now. This is awesome. You know what I'm talking about and you wait for that moment and you're disappointed if you wasted your time in the theater. You know what I'm talking about, right? This seems like those, that's what these verses are but Paul just said something profound here about what it means to be a Christian. In verse 11, he says, these men have been a a great comfort to me. Um, This word comfort, another way to translate that would be relief. They've been a relief to me. Which means that Paul's not saying, it's been great to have Mark here. I mean, I didn't really need him, but it's been great. And that's how we think about Paul, right? He's just a church planting machine, just running all over Asia Minor, just planting churches, just by himself, just a lone ranger for Christianity. No, he says, these men have been a relief to me, which means Paul needed comfort. He's saying that Christian community and meaningful relationships with other Christians had significantly impacted his life. But for some reason, we think we don't need it. I mean, it's great to be in a group, but I don't need that. The apostle Paul did, but we don't. Look at verse 17. He says, and say this to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. 
This is a little bit uh, odd because we don't know who Archbis was. Never hear from him again. Don't know what he was doing. Don't know the circumstances that were going on or why Paul in a prison cell in Rome would say to this guy in Colossae, hey, Archippus, somebody needs to say to him that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. What's interesting about this is we do know Paul felt compelled to say, somebody needs to say that to him. Paul doesn't say it to him. He could have said, hey, Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. He doesn't. He says, because there's something significant and impactful. He says, I want somebody who knows him to say to this brother, Archie, I did it again. I made a joke. (laughs) Dang it. All right. Paul is saying in a prison cell, somebody needs to look him in the face and go, man, you need to remember who Jesus is. And I know you're tempted to give up because life is hard and you're looking at yourself and you're going, man, I don't feel like I'm growing at all. Somebody needs to say, see that you fulfill the ministry in the Lord. Because there's something significant when we're in it together, right? And church, we, we could preach a whole series on this. But the point is that if we wanna grow spiritually, then we need one another. And what the Bible is saying is that the the significant spiritual change will happen in your life in the context of the local church, that we need one another. And that is everything from from doing this, gathering here on Sundays, to being a part of a community group, to being uh, on a serve team, volunteer team, whatever, to having coffee with friends, um, to everything, even including like, man, you, you think of someone and you send them a text, you say, man, how are you? How's your family? How can I pray for you? All of that. That's what this is talking about, that we need one another. We need to commit to be a part of each other's lives and not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's convenient because we need it and because other people need it from us, right? Um, Just like with praying, there's always something else you could be doing. I didn't plan to say this because there's probably some people from my community group in here, but I'm gonna say it anyways, all right? Um, Every single Wednesday night, every single one, I don't want to go. My wife and I lead it. <laughs> Every single Wednesday night, I don't want to go. And here's what's crazy. I actually like those people. Like, I don't just love them. I actually like them. I enjoy spending time with them. But every Wednesday night, I would rather sit on the couch. Or I would rather do the dishes or catch up on whatever. There's always something else that we could be doing, but as we commit to a regular rhythm of spending time with God and spending time with the people of God, we have this promise in the scripture that he is transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. And here's the last one, proclamation. Spending time on God's mission. Look back at chapter one in verse 23. Paul says, you were once alienated, he is now reconciled, 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And he says this, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul says, the good news of the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And this isn't, he's not saying that every person on the planet at that time had heard the gospel. This is just a general way of him saying that in the Greco-Roman world where he lived and existed, the gospel had been preached, it had been heard to both Jews and Gentiles. And then he says, and of which I have become a what? A minister. I have become a minister. And this is not like what we mean if we say, hey, he went into the ministry. This isn't just like vocational pastor. This means servant. This word literally means servant. And Paul's saying, it's true for him, it's true for me and you. Since I was alienated. And I was hostile in mind and evil and did evil deeds. But now I have been reconciled 
in his body of death by his flesh? Since this is true about me, I am now giving my life to be a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a proclaimer of the truth of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for me and and I get to share that with the world. That's what he's saying. Same thing is true for you and me. It's like what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. This will be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So if who is in Christ? Anyone. So we're not just talking about Vocational pastors here. This is any, Christ, any Christian. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Verse 18, and all this is from God. He's the one who does the work, who through Christ, he reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul's expecting some objections here because he, he basically rephrases the same thing. He goes, wait a minute, we're ministers of reconciliation? He goes, yeah. That is in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and he wasn't counting their trespasses against them, but he entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ that God makes his appeal through us. We are now representatives of Christ in every space and place that God has you if you are a believer in Jesus, in your home, on your neighbor, in your neighborhood, on your street, in your apartment building, at work, at school, in the, on the sports field, wherever you might find yourself because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, you are now an ambassador for Christ, a representative for Jesus in those spaces and places, which means that if you wanna grow spiritually, it's not just about what God is doing in you. It's also about what God is doing through you. And the mission of the church is that there's a future day coming where all the world is made better than brand new. And what God is doing in and through us is he's saying that we, as believers in Jesus, who have now been reconciled into right relationship with God, we we don't just live our lives for him, we live our lives with him. And as we do that, we get to reveal to the world in part what that day will be like in full. That's the truth of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. A more simple way to say that is this. At some point in our lives, God used other people to reach us. And so now he wants to use us to reach other people. Your discipleship, your obedience is not just tied to your sanctification. It's also tied to the mission of God, that God is using this church, his church in the world to say something different to the world, which means this. Let me get this out of of just... Sunday morning and in our heads and bring it down into, into your life this afternoon. It means when, when temptation comes in your life, you have a choice. When temptation comes in your life, you have a choice. You could give into it. You could, you could, get, you could choose lust, you could choose anger, you could choose harsh words, you could choose fear or worry. And if you did, it would be more evidence that we live in a broken world and there's darkness all around us. Or you could resist temptation and you could choose not to shift from the hope of the gospel. And you could choose to, in that moment, even though everything in you says, I want this, I wanna go this way, why can't I have it? In that moment, you can choose, rather than to to choose temptation, you can choose to trust that God knows you, that he loves you, that he's for you, and that he wants good things for you. And in doing so, in that resisting, you are evidencing your love for Jesus, and you are evidencing that there is a new world coming where everything will be made better than brand new. In our resisting temptation, even in small moments of life, we are evidencing that we love Jesus and we are evidencing that there is a day coming where we will not be slaves to our impulses. We will be fully and freely satisfied in Christ. And and you get to choose sacrificial love in your relationships, not because it's the Christian thing to do, but because that type of love reveals to the world a God who demonstrates his love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Church, your obedience and your discipleship is not just connected to your spiritual growth. It's connected to the spiritual growth of the people around you and the very mission of God. And so if we wanna grow, 
God's invited us in. He's gonna do the work of changing. We're beholding the glory of the Lord. We're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We commit ourselves a regular rhythm in our lives of prayer. Actually spending time with God. We commit to a regular rhythm in our lives of spending time with the people of God even when it's not convenient because when is it ever? And we see our lives through the lens that we get to participate in the mission of God as representatives and ambassadors for Jesus. So let me just ask you as we close, again, is the regular rhythm of your life, the person you most wanna become, are your habits making you into that person? If no, what are you gonna do about it? We ask him for help. So let me pray for us. I want you to bow your head. I'm just gonna give you a moment to just pray, just ask God. Man, maybe you feel stuck right now. Maybe you are stuck. You feel like there's sin in your life that's got its hooks in you so deep there's nothing you can do. Ask God to help you. Ask him to reveal to you what things that you need to commit to. What does committing to a daily life of prayer look like for you? What does it mean to commit to spending time with the people of God for you? And where does God want to use you in your life, in the spaces and places he has you? God, we thank you that it isn't up to us to do enough or to be enough to earn your love. In fact, the Bible teaches we never could. And yet here we are, no matter if we had the best week of our lives or the worst and your love for us hasn't changed because your love for us is based on what Christ has done for us. So help us, God, to in this moment rest in the good news of the gospel and yet not use it as an opportunity to be lazy, but that we would commit in our lives to regular rhythms of prayer, spending time with you because that's what we need to live. That we would commit to spend time with the people of God to like, Mark 10, 45 says, the son of man came to serve and not to be served, to lay his life down as a ransom for many. God, help us to, to serve the people around us, to see the role that you've given us to play in the mission of God. We thank you. I pray for folks who are struggling right now. They feel too lost, too broken for you to love them. Would you remind them of the good news of the gospel? You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Thank you for Jesus, we pray this in his name, amen. If you would stand, let's respond.